0: Matthew 21 is our text this morning. Matthew 21. Last week, I started the sermon this way. In the beginning, God created a king. A man. Adam. God gave that man to mankind. God gave... Dominion over all of the rest of God's creation. But what I didn't focus on was this. That God also took that king that He had made and He brought him into a temple. A garden temple in Eden. That place that was the dwelling place of God on earth. And now the man was brought right into that holy place. And God gave that king priest a task. You remember what the task was? He said, I want you to take the garden and cultivate it and what? And keep it, protect it, guard it from anything that would defile it. And that was actually the very language, both of those terms in fact the very terms that were used of the work of the priesthood with regard to the later tabernacle in the temple that God would establish. They would work it and they would protect it. So, for example, the protection of the temple, the guarding of the temple is seen in Numbers chapter 3, verse 7. God told the Levites that they shall, quote, keep guard before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. Now, Adam, of course, failed to guard the garden. He failed to guard God's beautiful and good world and his own heart from the temptations of the evil one. He failed as a king to exercise the dominion that God had given him over the creation. He failed as a priest to guard the sanctuary from uncleanness. But Jesus Christ came into this world, not only as the great king, as Matthew has presented him, the king of God's people, but also as the great priest. He came into the world to purify the sons of Levi, as the prophet said. The Lord shall suddenly come to his temple. And now that's what Matthew's recording. Matthew 21 beginning in verse number 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of all those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them and when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple hosanna to the son of david they were indignant and they said to him do you hear what these are saying jesus said to them yes have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing uh, infants and nursing babies You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, I mentioned last week that in the beginning of Matthew 21, there are three acts, three public, very public acts that Jesus performs. And he actually orchestrates all of them. None of them are happening to him. He is making each one of these three things happen. And each of them is a symbolic act. His entry into the city, the way that happened, and he had it all planned out. His cleansing of the temple and his cursing of this tree on the side of the road, all of them were actions uh, of Christ uh, designed to teach something to his people, to demonstrate something. And so, these last two acts, especially what he does in the temple and then what he does with the tree, are acts of judgment. And they have great uh, theological and historical significance, but even more immediately um, of pressing interest to us is that they also are full of practical meaning for us. So I want to explore this morning why Jesus did these things. What was going on as Matthew has been inspired to uh, record the events as they unfolded? Uh, for us now, what Matthew focuses on, if you notice your text again and, and kind of follow the way he, he lays it out he he, he, um, he speaks first of all of the cleansing of the temple, and that 's in verses twelve through verse seventeen okay, and in that section he tells us first of all about the actions of Christ, what he did and said, and then the response of the Jewish Leadership. So I want to look first of all at the actions of Christ and particularly what Jesus did. And he comes down into the city, um, he enters into the city, and one of the first uh, things that the, the place where he would enter in was the temple of Israel. And there he drove out, the Bible says, all who sold and bought in the temple. He took the tables where they were selling things and overturned them, the money changers who were exchanging money, all of this. He he kicked out the pigeon sellers. And and all of that maybe takes a little bit of of background if you're not familiar. I know most of you are. But let me give it uh, just so we can all be on the same page. This is Passover time, which is one of the high, holy festivals for the Jews. This is one of those festivals where God uh, reminded the people of Israel of His redemption of them and bringing them out of the land of Egypt where they used to be slaves. And so people from all around, Jews from all over the place were packed into this city at this holy festival, this Passover time. And and all of these pilgrims coming into the city were coming to the temple to offer their sacrifices to the Lord, their sacrifices of thanksgiving and so forth. And they would go into the temple and near the temple or or around the outskirts and even in Jesus' day, right in the very um, courts of the temple were uh, uh, money changers because you had to buy your sacrifice with a special kind of of temple currency. And so they would bring whatever local coinage they had and exchange it and then they they would buy their sacrifices, whether it was birds or larger animals, and they would bring them into the temple to be sacrificed. Um, And when Jesus comes in, and of course, most of us are also familiar with the fact that the temple of Israel was like the epicenter of God's presence, the manifestation of God's presence among His people. God had said, that is where I'm going to dwell. That will be like my throne room. The holy place where only the high priest could go, that was God's throne invisible God with no body, and yet there he sat right among his people right on the, uh, the golden uh, ark there. And so these people were coming to the Lord to offer him their sacrifices. And now Jesus is doing something that seems a little bit random to a lot of people, just like the cursing of the fig tree seems kind of random. Why is he going in here and casting out all of the money changers and people who just wanted to go and make a sacrifice to God. And, and it's possible that it maybe the money changers were cheating people, and, that, and so you know, he calls them thieves, and that could be. Um, although I, I got to thinking it seems a little strange that he casts out not only the buyers but also the sellers, Matthew says explicitly. He, he casts the Jews out of the temple, overthrows the money changers. What all is going on? What, did Jesus just wake up on the wrong side of bed? Is He a little grumpier than usual? I mean, why is He doing this thing? And the answer is rooted in the Old Testament. These, this is a prophetic act that Jesus is doing. A prophetic, symbolic act. A kind of picture prophecy that He is performing. And the prophets often did unusual things to make a point. They sort of acted out. They not only spoke their prophecies in the Old Testament, but they acted them out too. You remember reading some of the very unusual things that the prophets did, like, or oh, t- taking clay pots and smashing them in front of an audience of Jews, or 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 making a little scale model of the city of Jerusalem and lying down beside it for months on end, or or uh, marrying someone that uh, would end up uh, being unfaithful to them, or baking bread over a fire that was fueled by human excrement. Talk about weird stuff going on. Um, one of the prophets even went around naked uh, for three years. So a lot of weird things. And so what Jesus is doing, you know, picture it as of a piece with that kind of prophetic ministry, not only of pronouncements but also of actions. Jesus is doing two things here that are acted out prophecies for the people of. Israel, and particularly for the leadership in in Judah, the significance of what Jesus is doing can be seen in what He says now. So that's what we're going to focus on, secondly, what Jesus said. What Jesus said is recorded in verse 13 in your Bible, if you want to take note of it, and He quotes or alludes to two different passages of Scripture, and of course, He fulfills all of the Scripture as i studied this week all right i sat down and went through all of the old testament background far more than what we have time to do this morning and i was just stunned and amazed at the at the wisdom and the capability of the lord in the use of the old testament it was masterful so he takes two passages here that he quotes to enlighten them as to why he just did this thing that he did. The first one comes from Isaiah 56. In fact, there may be a little note in your Bible if you have a marginal note that tells you that. It comes from Isaiah 56. My house shall be called a house of prayer. We read the passage earlier. Let me give you a key principle of biblical interpretation. All right? Here you go, just for your own personal benefit, your own Bible study. And that is this, that New Testament quotations of the Old are often shorthand pointers to the wider Old Testament context. So if, a, if somebody in the New Testament quotes a little part of the Old, you should go back to the Old and look all around it. Look at the context. Look at what's going on. Because usually the whole context was in the mind of the person who was quoting it. And in in chasing those down, you will begin yourself to understand how to interpret the Bible okay, from the Bible itself. All right, that's it. That's your lesson for today. You got it? That's your Bible study lesson. You can take that one home. Now, in this case, this passage was teaching that the Gentiles would become part of the people of God. Here's here's some of the the more of the context. I'm just going to give it to you. We're not going to take time to turn there. Isaiah chapter 56 verse 3, listen again. We read it earlier. Let not the foreigner who joined himself to the Lord say, "The Lord will surely separate me from his people. I'm going to be kept out because I'm not a Jew." And remember, when Jesus is saying this, he's standing in the court of the Gentiles, in the temple. Ephesians, remember, talked about that dividing wall where we outsiders, non-Jews, non-people of God, we were kept out for all of those years from the temple. He says, even foreigners who join themselves to God, God will bring them up to His holy mountain, and He will bring them into His temple. And then He says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, right? Some of the other Gospels make that explicit connection. And then the prophecy ends this way, I will gather yet others besides those already gathered, which reminds me of Jesus' comment, I have other sheep to gather that are not of this fold, and I will gather them and bring them, and there will be one shepherd, and he will be, there will be one sheepfold, right? And so this is the envisioning, of a bringing in of a broader people of God than what had typically been the people of God throughout the Old Testament. Now, the other passage Jesus quotes is from Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7. And you can turn there, or I'm going to put it on the screen to make it easier. Um, And we're going to read the first four verses here. I think I've got it. Okay. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, excuse me, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, this was Jeremiah's prophecy, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Of course, that was at the temple. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. We have the temple. They thought, we are safe. This is the mark. The temple was the mark of God's interest in the Jews. And as long as the temple stood, it was a visible reminder of the favor of God, that God would live with those people. God, The God of all the universe would live with them. And they became very proud of that special relationship that they had with the God of heaven. But what the prophet is saying is, it is at this point because of their hardness of heart toward the God of the temple, that that temple there was just a sham for them. It was just a show. It was just an empty building at this point. It was just a place for them to go and and make a a buck. To put on a good show. And so he goes on in Jeremiah, verses 5 through through 11. He says, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one upon another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I, gave you, uh, that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, now he says, if you trust in deceptive words, remember, oh, we have the temple. We have God with us. If you trust in deceptive words to no avail, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, or make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all those abominations. He says, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it declares the Lord. The people of Israel were not abandoning God outright. They were still going through the motions of worship, right? Still going to the temple, still offering their sacrifices, still putting on a show, but with no real repentance and no real faith. The temple was supposed to be a holy place, But it had become a robber's den, a bandit's hideout, a place of ungodliness. And now, warning them by way of historical precedent, he says, Oh, I left it out. Uh, He warns them in verse 12, all right? about that he will do to them what he had done up in Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was a northern town in Israel. It's where the tabernacle used to be. Before it was down in Jerusalem, it had gone several places, but it used to be in, up in Ephraim. It was there for like over 300 years. And uh, the wickedness became so great in Ephraim with sin and idolatry and even drunken priests that God finally removed it. And the Philistines, you may remember the story, they came and took the ark away and God brought judgment upon His people. Well, now He says God is threatening to do again to them what He did before. And then in verse 13, He says this, And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when persistently, but you did not listen, and when I called to you, but you did not answer, Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name. That house is the temple now. I will do to that house which is called by my name and in which you trust and to that place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did up to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. What God did to the northern tribes, now he's going to do to, to these people who, who claim, oh, hey, we have, we have God's temple. We have God on our side. We, we still go and offer the sacrifices. And of course, in Jeremiah's day, God did just that. God sent Babylon to come in and to destroy the people of God, to destroy their temple and to bring God's people into judgment. And now, so what Jesus is doing now is once again, He's recapturing that language and that imagery and he's saying, this is happening again now. You are in danger of losing once again your, that symbol of your uh, favor from God, that temple that you so beloved, that you trust in. Because the priests of Israel have looked on while ungodliness abounds in the land. In fact, it will be before the very high priests of Israel that Jesus himself will stand trial in just a week. The problem that Jeremiah was confronting wasn't that Israel had abandoned the temple or had completely repudiated the God of Abraham. It wasn't that they weren't offering sacrifices anymore, that they weren't performing the temple rituals. No, all of those things were still ongoing. But what they had lost was that inner heart God. They didn't have repentant faith and hope and humble trust in God anymore. That's what they lost. They were going through motions. They had ritual, but they had no real faith. And you know how many people do this? And they come to church to ease their conscience or because someone pestered them enough to come. Or they maybe go to church every week and they go through the motions of, of being a church person. But in their hearts, there is no real repentance of sin. Amazement at the gospel. Faith in Christ. Religion has become for them just a tradition. Maybe something external in which they put their hope. I will tell you this, listen. Being a... Being, sitting in a church service week after week will not earn you a place before God. Okay? Any more than these people going to the temple and offering their sacrifices year after year earned them a place before God. You know what God was looking for? Humility and repentant faith. In his promised Messiah. That's still the only thing that saves. Jesus himself saves, and he alone. Your hope and trust is in anything else being a good person, um, performing the rituals of religion. These things are empty without faith. Some people serve Baal during the week and then feel like they're Christians because they go to church and they name the name of God on Sunday. This is not the first time the Lord had cleansed His temple. I'm talking about Jesus going into the temple and doing something similar. Um, Some people are confused by this uh, because John records Jesus going into the temple and doing something similar but different. In that case, he makes like a, You remember the cord, uh, the sort of whip that he makes? And he uses that to go through the temple. And it happens early in Jesus' ministry, right almost at the very beginning. This seems like this is is a different occasion happening late in, very late in the ministry. So, So what you have is Jesus right at the very beginning and right now at the very end of his ministry doing something very similar, this sort of symbolic act. The earlier one you might think of as... Like a warning, a picture warning to the people. Hey, this will happen. God will destroy your temple. God will judge you. He will cleanse out all of the ungodliness from His land if you don't repent. But now, it's like the judgment is here. It's imminent now. And I don't know, but that this, this sermon this morning may be intended by God to be uh, a warning for you. You know not go on in your coldness toward God, in your sin against God. Naming the name of Christ with your lips, but not loving Him with your heart and not following Him with your life. And this may be His warning that says, wake up! before it is too late, before the judgment falls, now is the day to get your heart right with God, to say, God, come into my life, cleanse me of my sin, revive me again, and praise God for such gracious warnings. And may you be people who take heed and are saved. These are the actions of the Christ. And now Matthew turns his attention to the response of the... Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, verses 14 through 17. That response comes on the heels of of healing. They bring the blind and the lame to Jesus. And, of course, if you know your Old Testament well, you know our, our, our deformed people, for lack of a better word, our malformed people allowed in the temple? The answer is no, that the Old Testament law kept them out. But here they come to the gates of the temple and Jesus heals them so that perhaps for the first time in their lives, those who were barred from entering the presence of God can come in and worship before the Almighty. And that's exactly what Jesus does, isn't it? When He touches you, and your uncleanness with His holy hand, His hand of salvation. When He puts His hand of salvation upon you and that blindness falls away and that leprosy is cleared up, spiritually speaking, when your sins are forgiven, when He touches you and He says, if you will come on your knees and humbly call out to me, I will wash you clean. You can come into the presence of God and enjoy God now and for all eternity. That is the glory of what Jesus is doing here. These people um, who saw this, they continue to praise Him, just like they had you know, on His entrance in. In fact, even the little children, the Bible says, are echoing the, the praises of, of the adults that they hear. Hosanna to the Son of David! A messianic acclamation, even from the little children. And when the Jews hear this, the leadership, they... They come to Jesus, they confront Him. Do you hear what they are calling you? Do you hear what they are saying? And of course, their assumption is that these children are filled with overzealous naivete in their referring to Him with messianic titles. These poor, simple, gullible children. And in response, Jesus quotes to them Psalm 8. These are the two first two verses of that psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. And yet, He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, You have established strength because of Your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. There are many foes and many enemies to God and to His rule, many who would cast off His bonds and His shackles. But God will be praised by what? The little ones, the babies and the infants, those who have no power on their own, those who have no clout, those who are the despised and the discounted. As Jesus said just a few chapters earlier, the least of them. In fact, the only people that get into heaven are little children, He says. You can see the way he's speaking here. It is these little ones, not the Jewish leadership, not those who thought that they were really close to God. It's, it's those who are despised and yet who acknowledged who he really was. Those are the people who would enter in. And he goes on to speak about God's giving to the Son of Man dominion over all things in this passage. Uh, this is the rest of the story, as someone famous used to say, uh, of what Jesus. the passage that Jesus quoted. Look, it goes on. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the sun which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the... Son of man, that you care for him. Which is a reference to humanity, but also when Jesus adopts it, it becomes a heightened reference to himself as the ideal human, the new human, the last Adam. What is the son of man that you care for Him, you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. This is exactly what would happen to the Son of Man because of His obedient death on the cross. And you have given Him dominion over all the works of your hands. The very thing that the first man failed to do, the second man would do. You have given Him dominion over all the works of your hands and you have put all things under His feet, a verse that is often... Reference to Jesus Christ Himself. You can see how Christ fills your entire Bible, can't you? I mean, the whole thing is all pointing to Jesus Christ. And here he quotes this passage in reference to Himself and to the praise that God would give to the Messiah through the least on earth. Not the great ones in sitting in power in Jerusalem, but to those faraway Galileans, the little children, the outsiders, the tax collectors, the former prostitutes. These are the people who saw. They saw clearly. Maybe they saw because they needed to see. Maybe they saw because they recognized how needy they were. When so many people are blinded by their own self-sufficiency and their own self-righteousness, He would be despised, Jesus would, by the establishment, by the powerful, by the wise, by the rulers, by those who were perfect, but He would be praised by the babies and the infants. And even today, not many worldly wise, not many mighty and powerful, not many rich, not many self-sufficient people can see, but those who are lowly of no account, those who know that they are sinners, their eyes can be open to the glories of Jesus. Well, Matthew now sort of condenses his timeline. So these events that he records, the the so-called cleansing of the temple, and now this other event, the cursing of the fig tree, they take place over a couple or three days, and Matthew just sort of condenses it to put this judgment in the temple side by side with the judgment of the tree. And so verse 18, back to our text in Matthew, in the morning as he was returning to the city, He became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he found nothing on it, but it had leaves. And so he said, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. Like the other two public acts that were orchestrated by Jesus during this last week, this too was a visual sermon, a picture prophecy, and it was a picture of judgment on Israel for her unfaithfulness. Israel was pictured all through the Old Testament as God's planting, as God's vineyard, or God's tree, as God's vine. God looked to His plant to bring forth what? What do you want from your garden? You want to bring forth fruit, right? But all God found was wild fruit, unbitter and tasteless, or, or no fruit at all rebellion and disobedience to his commands so the prophet micah said it this way woe is me for i have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when as when the wild grapes uh, excuse me as when the grapes have been gleaned in other words the it's like he goes out to get fruit and what is there nothing there's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood. Each hunts the other and so forth. So this becomes then, this, this barren tree becomes a symbol, a picture of the fruitlessness of the people who claim to be God's people. And now Jesus uses this literal fig tree on the side of the road to, to pronounce this kind of symbolic curse upon the people of Israel because of their real unfruitfulness for God, because they didn't love God. They didn't serve God. They didn't worship God. They didn't do anything from their heart, but only went through the motions. So Jesus cursed the tree and it dies and... uh It was uh, a little early in the season, Mark records, for the full figs, the the good figs to come on the tree. But there there was usually little, small figs as soon as the tree started to come out with leaves everywhere. And this tree was full of leaves, but it had no figs. In other words, outwardly it was saying, I'm fruitful, but the reality was something far different. Outwardly, it looked like it was going to satisfy you. But when you got up close, there was nothing to feed you. This is the Lord had said, I come to my people and there is no fruit. And so Jesus, finding no fruit on this tree, he pronounces a curse upon it. And in so doing, a curse upon the people who had only an outward profession, but no real power, no real reality, no real fruit no real evidence that they belong to God. And this too, this action is part of the great tapestry of prophetic revelation that God had woven together so many years earlier. For example, from Isaiah 28, where Isaiah says in verse 1, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Remember, the Ephraim is the northern part of Israel proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. This is speaking about the pride of Samaria, of the northern kingdom centered in Ephraim. Maybe also an allusion to the drunken priests, Hophni and Phinehas, who uh, served the Lord in the tabernacle many years before, up in Ephraim as well. Just the debauchery of of the so-called people of God. And then he says in verse 3, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as he has it in his hand. In other words, the Israel would be like a fig tree whose fruit was plucked up by the Assyrians, by the enemies of the people of God because of all of their sin and their unrighteousness. And in contrast to the proud crowns of the princes of Ephraim and the proud uh, drunken crowns of, the, of those priests uh, of the people, so God would be their king and priest. Verse 5, In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of the people. In other words, here's what God is saying. God's going to bring judgment on these people who were supposedly His people, outwardly His people. But when He does that, He will also Himself be their king and priest over a true and purified people of God. He goes on in verse 7, To speak of the corruption of both Israel's priests and their prophets, and of course their kings as well were corrupt, these also, he says, reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink and are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in the vision. They stumble in giving judgment. The king's judgment was impaired. The priest couldn't do his duty. All of these people had gone after uh, drunkenness, and of course not just drunkenness, that's a way of speaking of all of their sinfulness. The whole people were just sinful. They didn't love God. They were just God's people in name only. And upon them, God would bring a great judgment by a foreign power. Verse 11, For the people of by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to His people to whom He has said, This is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose but they would not hear. And God did and did speak to them in other tongues, but they would not hear. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 21 and 22 that the gift of tongues is a sign not primarily for believers, he says, but a sign of unbelief, a sign of judgment, a sign that God is turning away from the Israelites to the Gentiles, the people of unclean lips, the people who were afar off. Now God will speak to His own people through foreigners in 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 another tongue. And then in verse 13, He finally says that they may go and fall backward and be broken and be snared and be taken. God prophesied a great judgment upon the people whose fruit was taken away. Uh, in judgment, who were barren before God. The other prophets say it like this, and the days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool, and the man of, of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. And once again, Jesus... God's great prophet judges the people of Israel for her prophetic uh, and and her prophetic leadership. Those, Those scribes and Pharisees who thought of themselves as the voices of God. Jesus is going to judge the prophets of His day just like God judged the prophets of the days of old when Israel proved fruitless. He goes on and says in this passage, "...like great. In the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers when they came to Baal Peor, they sinned, they consecrated themselves to the thing of shame, they became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall what? Bear no fruit. In other words, this was a fig tree that God planted and they continued to bear. Bear bad fruit; they continue to be unfruitful for His name, and so He would come and curse them. This is what Jesus is now acting out in His uh, own lifetime. He, he goes on to say that God, God, they shall bear no fruit, even though they give birth. I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them. Why? Here it is: because they have not listened to Him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. It is that ongoing resistance to the Word of God that brings the judgment of Almighty God. And that's what Jesus uh, is doing here. And He goes on to say, now verse 21, back in the text in Matthew chapter 21, take a look at verse 21, we'll end here. He says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Of course, that's an echo of what He had said earlier which speaks in general about the effectiveness of prayer. Whatever you ask for in in faith, according to the will of God, it will be done. But in this context, I think it's probably more significant than that because Jesus is saying, you you say to this mountain, and the mountain they were on was the very mountain of the temple. It was the place of Israel's hope. And once again, Jesus is speaking about the destruction of, that God will bring upon His people, upon Jerusalem, because of their unfruitfulness. Now I want to draw it to a close for us, okay? as I have been all through here. And this is a difficult sermon because it is a sermon of warning to you and to me. One writer said that the Bible warns of dead religion. Listen to this. The Bible warns of dead religion more often than it warns against lust or murder. J.C. Ryle said, open sin and avowed unbelief no doubt slay their thousands, but profession without practice slays its tens of thousands. How many people do you think are in this world who think of themselves as good people Religious people go through the motions and yet deny the Lord in their reality. And this is why these people were rejected as God's people. And you may be too if your profession of faith is not an inward reality. Somebody says, well, you know, I, I prayed a prayer a long time ago. I joined a church. I got baptized. I, uh, I attended the services. But listen to me. Jesus says, many people will say in the day of judgment, the most fearful words you can imagine, depart from me, I never knew you. Not I knew you and you... Left me. I never knew you. And these are people he's speaking to who had done many mighty works in his name, and he never knew them. James says, Don't be among those who hear but don't do deceiving yourselves. Peter says, Make sure of your calling and your election. Remember, Jesus in John 15 said, if you're a Christian, if you abide in Jesus Christ, Jesus abides in you, your life will be transformed. You will, he, he will bear fruit in you. He will, his life will shine out through you somehow. The old you will decrease and Christ will increase in you. And he said, if you don't bear any fruit... He said, the kind of branches that don't bear any fruit, God cuts off from the vine and he throws them into the fire. I tell you, beware, brothers and sisters, beware, friends and those who sit in the service of empty ritual masking a heart of unbelief. It may be that you grew up in the church, Maybe that you can go through all of the order of service and almost by memory you can sing the hymns, you memorize some of the verses, but your life is not really manifesting any evidence that God is in you. And I'm so burdened to to not let any of us come and sit under my preaching without being challenged about that. It's not intended to undermine the faith of any who truly belong to Christ. And I tell you that most of us don't bear the, the kind of fruit that we wish we did the amount that we want to. But you know, I tell you what, there is a great vine dresser in heaven who will continue to work in you. And those who bear fruit, he will cleanse you and purge you so you will bear more fruit. So take hope. But I don't want anybody to walk away without being challenged to examine yourself. Because I want to see you in heaven, and I want to see you give glory to the great vine dresser, the great gardener of heaven, by bearing fruit for his name, by his life working itself out in you. I want to see you surprised that God is working in you that which is beyond what's natural to you, And so fall on your knees and give him thanks and rejoice in him. He came unto his own, but what? His own received him not. That's what's happening here. That's what Jesus is so visibly demonstrating. And you know, here is why that rejection is so applicable right now for us. I'm going to give it to you in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 11. He's using the same illustration of a tree that ought to bear fruit for God. And he says, but if some of the branches were broken off, remember Jesus said the ones that bear no fruit, they are broken off. He says, if some of the branches, that is those Israelites in name only, if some of those branches were broken off and you, you outsiders, you Gentiles, if you were like, uh, a, like a wild olive branch, if you were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, okay, he says, now here's a lesson for you. You do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you then you will say, well, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true, he says. They were broken off because of their unbelief. So it's the plan of God to, to, through their unbelief, graft in Gentile people into the people of God, but he says they were broken off because of their unbelief, and You stand fast through what? The opposite, through faith. So do not become proud, he says, but fear. Why? For if God did not spare the natural branches, if He brought destruction upon that city, if He destroyed that temple and knocked it down, if He brought His judgment upon those people, if He did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. And here's the warning, otherwise you too will be cut off. So what happened to them all those 2,000 years ago? that was such a monumental sort of shift and progression in salvation history also becomes a lesson for every single generation of God's people even now for all of us no matter what our background is no matter what our physical pedigree if we if we name the name of Christ and if we go through the rituals of religion he says be careful that you don't that doesn't mask a heart of unbelief So how would it be that you might become like Israel? It wouldn't happen overnight, but happens by a slow sense of presumption on the grace of God. I think that's the way it happens. Presumption. You presume that you belong to God, even though there becomes precious little evidence that it is so you presume that God will be merciful though you continue to sin and sin and sin and sin against Him and your repentance grows more and more shallow and meaningless until at last you find that there is really no repentance at all. R.C. Sproul, adapting a line from my fair lady of all things, used to say, I've grown accustomed to His grace. And I think that's the way it can be for the people of God. God is gracious. And it used to amaze me and it used to astound me that God would be merciful. It used to move my heart to love Him and to serve Him. And Now it barely moves me at all. I've just grown, grown accustomed to His grace. There's a heart of not desperation for revival, but presumption. That, of course, I'm one of God's people. <laughs> the temple, the temple, the temple. And God says to us today, do not trust in those vain words. May God give every one of us a sober heart of reflection. There is a great hope that Christ will finish the work that He began, that those who belong to Him will never be lost, but Christians should have a holy fear lest we prove not, in fact, to be true Christians. And like so many of the Israelites, growing cold and growing through the motions, brothers and sisters, continue to come back to the Lord again and again, repent, learn how to repent, learn how to pray Psalm 51 and to pray, oh, I want to know you more. Don't let me just grow cold and comfortable and apathetic and presumptuous. Would you bow in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would take this word that was acted out by our Lord all those years ago and that has been spoken this morning and drive it home in just the way that it needs to be driven home. I pray for those who are truly yours that this would be a warning that would serve to keep them in the faith. And I pray for those who may not truly be converted that this would be a day of real repentance and a genuine saving grace. I pray for those who have only gone through the motions of religion that today they would be awakened. God, open their hearts, open their eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.